This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips. He, the man of the ocean swim, the, the man of the Hawaiian Ironman triathlon, the man who just could not get enough exercise before doing this podcast on Sunday morning, is Andrew Ram Page. How are you, buddy? I'm very good, sir. Very good. Um, yep, done the done the routine. Feeling good, good, good about myself. Yep, it's all about the temp- body's a temple, mate. Body's a temple. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, I reckon we just get straight into it. We had a good chat on on Friday. We got a lot of questions to get through. Should we just start straight on in? Yep, let's do it. Here's one from Michael who says, "Hey, Mr. Phillips and Rampage, question for the mailbag. I just listened to Andrew's quick napkin company analysis with EPS multiplying growth and PE, etc." The question, how does equity and the strength of the balance sheet play out in this? The best example is surely Harvey Norman and JB Hi-Fi. Love your thoughts, Michael. Yeah. I think it's a really, really good Great. question, mate. So for those who don't know, and Myra DJs for another example, Harvey Norman and JB Hi-Fi have roughly the same PE, give or take. I don't know what the numbers are. You know, they're both single digits or very, very low double digits. Um, JB Hi-Fi, not a huge amount in the way of assets. Harvey Norman, four billion of their four and a half billion market cap is in property, assets mm. on the balance sheet. Mm-hmm. If you look at this business, you say, well, they're both roughly the same valuation-wise. And that's absolutely true if you look at an earnings multiple. On the other hand, the balance sheet, very, very, very different. What do you what do you look at when you consider those sorts of questions, mate? There's um, like in life and in so many things, there are, there are always trade-offs. So you would say, I haven't done the work, but my strong assumption would be that when you add up all the money that was raised and invested into Harvey Norman since day mm-hmm. dot, and then you look at all the return that that has generated, and you do the same with JB Hi-Fi, I suspect JB Hi-Fi has gotten a much better uh, internal rate of return, they call it, in, in the sense that the the... I've got to be careful the the phrases I use. We yeah. touched this on Friday. I, I was tempted to sort of say Harvey Norman has a lazier balance sheet. <laughs> yes. And and that just means that they've got all this money tied up in property, which in and of itself is not generating a zero return. It's mm-hmm. probably been a reasonable return, in fact, but but not great. And not the kind of return that JB Hi-Fi is getting just by operating its business. So on that measure, JB Hi-Fi is a superior economic engine. It took less in and spat out more. That's that's a win. Yep. yep. Um, but as I said, there's a compromise here. And we touched on this on Friday. The compromise is, is that Harvey Norman is far more resilient. Like things could go really bad. They could they could suffer losses for years and years and years and years and still be standing because they'd probably just sell their sell and lease back their properties. There's all kinds of options that that a JB Hi-Fi doesn't have, where if they got into sustained um, unprofitability, well, they're in real trouble. They either need to raise a bunch of debt or, or equity or something, or they're out of, they, they don't exist anymore. So that's the trade-off. Um, in terms of my little back-of-the-napkin valuation model, it doesn't factor into it at all because it's just sort of saying the share price in a point in time and the return between then and now is just purely a function of whatever the earnings per share are and what the PE is. Now, how you get to that earnings per share is there's a hundred different ways you could get there. Um, and some will be far riskier than others. So you won't, won't 
fold into the equation and process directly, mm. but it should, and this is why the question <laughs> was so great, it should yeah. factor into your reasoning in the sense that if something is um, very fragile, I would be wanting a bigger margin of safety. Yeah. For fun, if you want to call it that, I was writing something <laughs> up a couple of weeks ago. I went and had a look at Babcock and Brown's um, oh, right. investor presentation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the most recent one before it all went belly up. For those that don't remember, Babcock and Brown was like uh, touted as a mini Macquarie bank. They were an investment bank. They'd had a long history before being listed on the ASX. And they just made it rain. Like they just made money hand over fist. It was Wolf of Wall Street on steroids. Like it was just insanely profitable. And and you could have very easily done my method where you've gone, well, look, they've grown at very strong double digit rates forever. I feel as though they can grow at five or six percent per annum for the next five years and shouldn't be a stretch to assume the market will be trading at a P of 15 or 16 at that point in time. And, you know, bingo bango, there's my valuation. Of course, the real valuation was zero because it went out of business because the GFC happened and all their assets got wiped out and they were leveraged up to the eyeballs. And that that's when it, it's like, so it actually, the balance sheet doesn't make a difference until it makes a difference. And and I, I hope I've squared the circle there. That's how I would sort of think about it. That definitely, I think it's a useful calculation, but it's only, as use, it's only useful in the sense that you have the assumption presumption maybe that the business will, will survive and uh, not, not have to go through some hyper dilutive sort of capital raise to stay, to stay standing. It's a good point. I think that's, so uh, Meyer and DJ's had a similar thing though. For a while they were a similar PE. Mm -hmm. DJ's had a truckload of um, buildings, their CBD kind of stores in Sydney and Melbourne, maybe Brisbane, mm -hmm. I think it was just near Melbourne. And Meyer had nothing and the same PE and you go, hang on, how is that possible? I think it's. I mean, it is. It is a piece of string question. It's a philosophical question at some point, Michael. Because to Ram's point, which one of those businesses would you want to own? Uh, and if you own them, you know how lazy is that balance sheet? You know, there's, there's, there would be in some cases a very real argument to say actually, Harvey Norman should sell or spin off some of that property because it's not being valued by the market for that. I mean, relatively speaking. This is not something we've just both uncovered. Hey, actually, there's $4 billion worth of property here. Hey, we should go and grab it. Now, by the mm. way, I should say at this point, I own Harvey Norman shares, as our listeners well know, but just to repeat it, and for anyone who doesn't know that. Um, so, you know, on one, on one level, you've got this business that is, as you said, Ram, you know, uh, far less productive and has all these assets. So, you know, when do you get value for them? And if you never get value for them, then it is just that fail-safe rainy day protection. And I've I said on Friday, I like that. Um, not about Harvey Norman on Friday, but just in general, I like the I like the a lazier, more conservative balance sheet. But how much is too much, and how much is too little? Maybe JB Hi-Fi's balance sheet is plenty lazy enough. Um, maybe Harvey Norman is is actually hurting returns by keeping that much in assets on the books because it's money that could otherwise be returned to shareholders in one way or another. And you know, if Jerry decided tomorrow. I'm going to sell my entire property portfolio and lease all these things back from the new buyers. And I'm going to give our shelves back $4 billion. Mm. That's a pretty bloody good return. Yep. Now, should he? No, probably not. But equally, I'm not sure JB Hi-Fi has done a terrible job by having no meaningful assets. In fact, Harvey Norman is trading at 1.03 times its book value. So basically, you're, selling, you're, buying, you're buying Harvey for its assets and giving the operating business for free. On yep. the other hand, JB Hi-Fi, three and a half times book yep. value. Yep. So in the good times... JB Hi-Fi is a much, much, much more efficient, effective business with a much better return on assets 
That's what you want. You want a high return on assets in, in general. Mm-hmm. Harvey Norman, much, much lower because it's got much more assets. Now, if you are worried about downside protection, primarily or only or you know, significantly, Harvey Norman is a better idea. Um, the if, you, if you're not worried about it or you, you think the growth is likely to come in for JB Hi-Fi, then do that. One really- It does, it does give you a, sorry, look, I'm not, I'm not advocating for this, but and I, and it's only because you need someone like a Jerry Harvey at the helm. You need a, what's the word? A personality that's there because let's say private equity took over Harvey Norman tomorrow. Yes. <laughs> Shareholders would make out yep, like yep. bandits. Yes. The, oh, yeah. Big, they would just sell the property down, oh. big special dividend, yep. or we're going to do and like It's just sort well, of like- That's exactly what happened with David. <laughs> that's, yeah, I mean- like, might, he, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and the reason it doesn't is because Jerry Harvey doesn't want it to, and he's not driven by maximizing profits. For, for whatever reason, I'd like to think it's for prudent- longevity considerations mm-hmm. um sorry to interrupt there but that's 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 again there's a compromise that that is deliberately i would imagine being taken there 100 percent. i want to though address michael's question because there is another consideration here um harvey well there's a couple firstly they're not identical businesses because harvey is a franchise or predominantly particularly mm-hmm. for its australian business so mm-hmm. it's not the same it, it's it owns the brand it owns the properties someone else runs the businesses the 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 business models for every dollar of extra revenue that both businesses get, um, Harvey normally gets much less of it than JB Hi-Fi does because JB Hi-Fi owns the ex- every dollar of revenue. Harvey gets its cut of the franchisee's revenue growth. So growth and decline in those businesses have very, very different outcomes. And so the asset model should be different. Yep. Uh, the other one, and this is the bigger one, by the way, is we're not, because, because Harvey Norman uh, owns its own properties, it's not paying, it, it's paying effectively, sorry, it's not paying the rent it otherwise might be, that JB Hi-Fi has to pay. So at a PE basis, if you were to equalize these two companies for their balance sheets, which you could, you'd have to also equalize the P&L for the same thing. In other words, if Harvey Norman didn't have that asset, but had to pay a lease for those assets, it would have less money in profit. So the PE would actually change if you actually right-sized or standardized the balance sheet. So there's, you know, Harvey Norman would effectively make less money because it'd have to pay more in leases, but it doesn't at the moment because it owns the assets. Equally, JB Hi-Fi, if it owned the assets, would make more money because it'd save money on those lease outgoings. And so you've just got to be, you've got to, you've got to allow for both of those things at the same time. If you want to make an adjustment or comparison to the, pal- the balance sheet, you need to adjust similarly in your estimation or your analysis for the different outgoings that owning a place versus paying a rent. And think about it a, a, as a homeowner, uh, if you own your own home, you have a an asset that call it a million dollars and no outgoings. Yeah. You could sell that asset. You could get a million dollars, but you'd have to pay a rent every week. The renter has a higher return on assets because they are not paying for those. You know, they don't have it, the assets on the balance sheet, but they have a lower um, uh, profit, you know, uh, uh, more outgoings for every mm-hmm. dollar of rev- income. So there, you have to do just both at the same time if you want to do a like for like. Overall, um, I think Harvey Norman's actually it's cheaper on a PE basis anyway, uh, and I like the, the the backing of the assets, so I think it's a safer option. Uh, I expect that JB Hi-Fi will probably have a brighter future profit-wise, um, but you're paying a, you're paying a certain PE for that. So I like them both. I think I've recommended them both. So there you go. Mm. Um, I own Harvey Norman. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't add to that. It, it, it's just always a matter of. 
trade-offs. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's such in, not just in this example, but in in almost every aspect of yes, it. Yeah. We talk a lot about opportunity cost when you're yeah. building a portfolio. As soon as mm-hmm. I put my money here, it can't be anywhere else. You correct, know, and it, it, it's um, yeah. And and our conversation on Friday for those that didn't listen to it was just really <laughs> hammering that point: is that sometimes it's better to not be super efficient. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not important until it is, yes. and. I, it's a personal, there's no right or wrong answer, but I'm with you, mate. I, I, I would rather there be, get rid of your just-in-time delivery, you know, mm-hmm. have some inventory there. I don't, I think that's a good idea to have some inventory there. Have some money tucked away earning bugger all interest. Fine. You know, it's the drag. I get it. it. Yep. In yep. case I need it, you know, yep. Yep. let's it's not- you until it's worth everything to you. Exactly. Let's not hire every, like expand the workforce by 3,000 because we expect these orders to come through next month or, you know, let's just- Yep. Let's just be a little bit conservative on things. And and we will be seen as not being as efficient as we could otherwise be. But when the tide goes out, we'll still be standing, you know, or we'll still, yep. we'll, we'll be the ones with our, with our trunks on and others will be revealed to be naked. It, mate, honestly, it, it's it is exactly what you want because it means you're not going to go broke. And that, that opportunity is, is huge. Um, yeah, I think we've probably done that one. Yep. Uh, one from Matt who says, uh, G'day, Scott. I have a question for both you and Ram for the pod machine. See, then I was the pod machine, Andrew. I keep telling you. I was hoping for both of your general thoughts on the following. I'm in my mid-30s and have a salary sacrificed for a few years now to maximum contributions in super. I'm happy doing this with any pay increases I received. They went straight into super, so I've never seen any difference. Super smart. My dilemma, though, says Matt, is I have been thinking more so recently uh, that by contributing those extra funds to my super, it doesn't allow me to invest as much as I could on my personal account. Mm. What would your opinions be if I stopped my salary sacrifice and automated those funds into investing in my personal account, which I can access if the need ever arose? I understand the tax benefits I am receiving with the salary sacrifice, but it's something I've been thinking about more recently and would hate for retirement goalposts to be moved further away when the time comes to retire. Thanks for the time you both shared to help us all out. Cheers, Matt. Yeah. Really, really good question. Um, what are your thoughts, Ram? And well, have well, those thoughts changed with the with the recent changes to to superannuation rules from the, the government? Yeah, I mean, I I come from a, a I recognize Landon, a, a whole different song. Sorry. <laughs> well, I come from a cynical place. I mean, you all else being equal, it's so hard to compete against the super option because yeah. of all the tax advantages and rah rah rah. rah you know, it's just it's mm-hmm. so demonstrably better and any financial planner listening they go well do it in super dude it's it's clear look look here's the mass where i and i haven't done that and i haven't maximized i mean obviously i put money into super and mm-hmm. more than i have to in fact but i have they've i have a view that the goalpost will be moved we were talking on friday about the structural deficit situation yes. we're in yeah. increasing there is a honeypot there that government will they've already tapped into it They've already tapped in. Remember in the GFC? Oh, um, um, oh, you can buy a house oh, with it good. now. Yeah, yeah but yeah. you know, it's just it. It when when there is a the next crisis comes along, mm. and and we aren't financially prepared for it. We're not. Um, they will dip into it, or they'll push the retirement age back. To, you know, the, the the what's it called where you can access it? Um, Reservation age. Thank you. Um, they'll push that back further or something. And and mm. the, the other is more macabre observation is that maybe you get hit by a bus tomorrow mm-hmm. so i i'm i'm a i'm a hyper long-term focused person in general mm. um and i think you you there are advantages to, to being that way but at the same time i i mean i could i could go out into the middle of australia 
in the cheapest caravan park I could find, raise the family there on two-minute noodles mm. and build the most incredible fortune <laughs> that the world has ever seen. Yeah. Um, but I'd be a, you know, yeah. I think there is there is a, and there's no, it's a subjective consideration, but there is something to be said of enjoying the here and now. Yeah. You know, the, the other end of the spectrum is I only enjoy the here and now. Right? I, don't, <laughs> I don't do anything for my future. And that's wrong yep, as well. Yep, 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 so yep. where that line lies is up to you. Me personally, I don't because I, I think the rules will be changed and because I, I, I don't know, I'd like to, I'd like to have some, I'd like to enjoy the fruits of my labors mm. before I'm 85 or whenever I'm allowed to touch it. <laughs> you know, I want to buy a house at some point. <laughs> that, yeah. That's for me is the big thing. And, and if it's locked up in super, well, the way, the way it's currently structured, I can't. So that's yes, why it's currently structured. And it's, it's why it's a um, personal, it, like, it, it, like it's, yeah, yeah, it depends yeah. kind of thing. But that, yep. that is to, to the point before about compromises, that's it. That's, that's what you have to sort of, you know, are you hyper confident that you will live a long and healthy life and that the goalposts won't be moved too much, uh, and you feel as though you're still enjoying life as it is today without having to be overly frugal, put whatever you can into super. Yep. If not, adjust accordingly. I think that's right, mate. I'm a little cynical than you, but not by all that much. Um, so again, obviously, Matt, we can't tell you what you should do. As with any question we're asked, we can only talk generally about the issues. Um, I... There is a great line I heard once about uh, about a, a business and two managers talking. And one says, what if we train all our staff and they leave? The other guy says, what if we don't train them and they stay? Yes, yes. I you love know, that. And, it's, and it's, a nice, it's a nice kind of reminder that there are two ways to think about it. So uh, what if I, you know, I, I have people say we shouldn't have superannuation because too many people die before they get super. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but most don't and so you know I, I get i get that it kind of sucks to have saved if i say 11 percent of my salary and i die the day before i retire that's gonna suck i mean yeah. my family will get some money so that'd be worthwhile and i'll still benefit i think that's still a good decision overall uh but what if i lived to 95 and i didn't save because i thought i might die at 65 there are mm. there are always trade-offs and i don't yep. think it's back to that bloody it's exactly back to what we were talking before mate about being conservative right the the lazy personal balance sheet is you don't, want to, you don't want to be so skint that you never spend any money. Yeah. On the other hand, you don't want to get 85 and go, well, my last 10 years are going to be rubbish because I can't afford the nursing home and I can't afford the medical care and mm-hmm. I can't afford to replace the car. And so you spend your last 10 years going, well, I might be in the prime of my life, but I'd kind of like to be more comfortable than I am now. And if I'd done some different things and maybe saved, it might have been worthwhile. Yeah. And so there was absolutely a balance there, as you rightly point out. For me, um, I, as with you, mate, the answer is both. Hmm. Um, Matt, I... I the, the tax savings are extraordinary. I talk about goalposts. I don't share your cynicism, Ram, in for for, for the average person, right? Mm. If if General Twiggy Super is is taxed at thirty eight percent at some point, well, okay, you know it is what it is. Is it fair or not? Probably, probably not. Different conversation doesn't matter. Mm. I'm never going to have that much wealth. Now, do I think I'll be paying a bit more in super and tax when I retire? I hope so, because I think superannuation is grossly unfair to everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people taking six-figure retirement incomes and paying zero tax, while other people are paying marginal rates of 30 35 38%, whatever the number is, mm-hmm. um, who are working. I, I think that's just extraordinarily unfair and unreasonable. Yep. So I think we'll probably have some changes. Do I think superannuation will still be more attractive than investing in my own name? Yes, absolutely. Even if they do change. And this is the thing. Mm. You, you That's made a good point, point. about trying to be too 
you're a little bit too clever by half. I think this time around, yeah. there is almost no chance that superannuation is worse than investing in your own name. And even if it was just as bad, you're still no worse off. Now, yes, you've locked the money up, but you can't, in the range of outcomes, okay, there's a zero, in my mind, there's, a, there's nothing zero. There's a 1% probability mm. superannuation is taxed more harshly. There is a two-thirds probability it's taxed more, uh, conserv- uh, more concessionally, and there's one-third chance it's taxed the same. Mm. So roll those probabilities up, and I'm still better off investing in super. Now, mm. maybe it gets back pushed, to, pushed back two years. That also kind of sucks. Mm. Uh, but am I still better off? Yes. Uh, so, so I am. That being said, for all that, so that, mm. that I strongly believe that. That being That's said, a good point. I also invest in my own name because I want to have the flexibility to add to or to take money out of super, oh, sorry, out of my investing before preservation age. Mm. So if I want to throw this whole thing in, uh, sign off for the podcast forever and go and you know, move to Ram's Caravan in the Outback and eat two-minute noodles because uh, I do want as a lifestyle choice, <laughs> then I want to have the choice to do that. And right now I've got the choice of either working or waiting for super and, and having nothing in the meantime, yeah. or I can have some of that money and access to it. So I think optionality is important. And for me, yeah. I wouldn't avoid contributing to super for goalpost reasons. I think that's a... I think it's the wrong framing, honestly. I think mm. no one wants a change. And yes, it might change. It's almost certainly going to still be better than not putting money in super concession-wise. So mm. I would still do it. But I also want to have money outside. So I have the flexibility to spend what I want when I want, particularly before preservation age, if I make that choice. Um, I don't want to be I don't want to be constrained to, gee, I'd love to give up work now. I've got $84 million in super. It's not going to happen. Uh, but I can't touch it yet. So now mm. I'm forced to work for another three years Socking shelves at Woolies, so I can finally get my hand on the on the honeypot. Mm. Um, there, there's something in between there, which is I want to have a great superannuation. I think it's super attractive tax wise, but I want to have some other money so that if I want to go part time, give up work, buy a car, whatever, between now and retirement age or, or preservation age, I can I can do that. Yep. I guess one other risk I would have is not so much in changing tax rates or eligibility criteria. Mm. And I'm not saying I expect this, by the way, but I just put it out there as a possibility. Um, there are there are the risks of capital controls. In other words, yes, we get in really bad economic situation, <laughs> and yep. and the government will say, "Well, look, you you have to dedicate forty percent of your super to government yep. bonds." Yep, yep. We're going, to, we're going to point a gun at your head effectively and say, "Buy the bonds, mm-hmm. take our debt." Um, that's happened actually remarkably often in history, <laughs> really often. Um, and and I don't – that's not my base case, by the way. But it's, it is something to be aware of where you'll still sort of have the basic structure and outline of it, but you just lose flexibility in where you can invest your money. And maybe Except that could also happen in um- – Outside super as well, by the way. Yeah, that's actually 100 percent true. Yeah, fund managers could be made to do the same thing. Individuals could be made to do the same thing. It's it, but I take. I, I imagine they go for super, super first, though, because yes, that's exactly. the easiest one for the government. It's just like, look, we're doing this, yeah. and it's all good because now we all get to invest in Australia's future, and you can help oh, be a part yeah. of funding yes. that you know for our kids. Or our, uh, <laughs> Build what? The What's yeah. the interest rate I have to get? Oh, mm-hmm. Okay, and how much? How much like inflation am I wearing in these next 30 years that you make me? Mm. You know, I don't know. It, it's, it has worked out badly for a lot of people around the world throughout history. And I don't think it'll happen, but yep. it could. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, very, very, very possible. Um, it's, a really, it's a really good question, though. It's a, yeah, I, th- I think a, a bit of both is, is probably and generally the right answer. Yeah. Hey, um, mate, here's a question from an anonymous uh, questioner who says, Dear Scott and Andrew, I'm an avid listener of the podcast and admire the depth of analysis you bring to various investment opportunities. Thank you. Currently, I'm particularly interested in exploring the positives and negatives 
of investing in the small amount of ASX-listed childcare providers. I myself am the owner of a few small for-profit childcare services and find the public's general perception of operators quite off the mark. There is a narrative that large corporate childcare providers are huge profiteering juggernauts. However, a quick glance at the share price of the few companies that are listed suggests anything but. With COVID proving difficult for much of the sector, we then rolled straight into a staffing crisis that seems to have no end in sight, which is affecting many businesses' ability to operate at capacity. I've heard Andrew briefly refer to the sector in previous podcasts, so I assume he has done some research into investment opportunities at one point. With a fourth childcare provider currently recently listing on the ASX, I'd love to hear both your thoughts on current and future factors that may affect those businesses and whether the sector appeals to you or not as an investor. Mm. Full on. And that's from an anonymous questioner. Oh, I love that. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, something's different. I think when you're a small, I say small only in context of relative to ASX listed companies, mm. you know, but if you are in a few yes. different childcare centers, I suspect, and this is like the hyper rational thing would be just mm. like, mm. I want to make sure that these things are throwing off enough cash to justify yeah. the investments and to, to make it worth my while. I, right? Like that's job done. If, mm. if I had an, if I had a child, if I could buy, if, well, let me start again. You ring me up tomorrow and say, mate, I've got an opportunity to buy a childcare center. Here are the financials. We can buy it for four times earnings. Mm. So we'll we'll pay it back in four years. And then after that, we just got a guaranteed income stream. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't see it growing too much. We're at capacity. So we'd have to open up multiple centers. But the plan is we'll get the odd fee increase every now and again through inflation and the rest of Mm. it. I'm sure we'll have some good times and some bad times. But it'll it'll throw off a, a reasonable amount of income. Are you in? And my answer would probably be, hell yeah, you know? <laughs> yep. PE of four, uh, absolute cash flows guaranteed. Well, not guaranteed, sorry. I've got to be careful with my language. <laughs> Likely cash flows to be had over a very long period of time. And then I can sell the business at some point in the future and realize the capital value. Hell yeah, it makes a huge amount of sense. The corporate model, and we saw this with ABC Learning, and I'm, I'm sure the listeners rolling their eyes because it's, it's an unfair comparison, but mm. I did reveal some, some characteristics that are at play here. Those corporate entities do not have that, eh, if I can just get a decent cash flow, I'll be happy. No, no, no. They grow. Grow, grow, grow and become the biggest and best. And the trouble is, is with a childcare center is that once you hit capacity, you're at capacity. Mm. I mean, how do you grow beyond that? Well, fee increases, sure. Um, but there are mandates and there are other things there and there's competition. So you just can't raise with abandon. So, so what do they do? They roll up. They, they, they go and they buy other childcare centers. And the trouble with the roll-up strategy in this instance is that there's not a lot of economies of scale. Mm. My other center has a separate rent. It's got separate staff. Yeah, I can consolidate some admin functions and yeah, there is some, you know, maybe I get better purchasing power for my, my mm. nappy order and whatever, mm. um, but, but not really. And so what they do is they, they demonstrate phenomenal growth. G8 was the same. ABC was definitely th- this, where they, they're trading on the market at a growth multiple, maybe 20 times earnings, but they're buying these private businesses for, for four times operating profit, something like that. So it's, it was a, what, the, what they call a PE arbitrage, you know, and, and I can raise money really cheaply here at the market at this really high multiple. I can add that new center onto mine. I demonstrate growth, which maintains my multiple. And actually as a, as a feat of, Financial engine, well, it's not really financial engineering, but if, but if you know, mm, mm. 
I, I, I get incredible growth and actual real per share growth if I do the numbers right. Yeah. The tricky part is with it is is that you eventually run out of good opportunities. All the long low hanging fruit is taken. So every marginal acquisition is a worse and worse and worse childcare center. Mm. Then the mark, then the growth starts to store, and then you lose your growth premium, which means you lose the PE arbitrage opportunity on it. And they're just for me, that's the not. It's by the way, this is the exact same thing. If you look at the listed aged care facilities, same dynamics, play mm-hmm. some unique characteristics, obviously, but same kind of thing. They're not the roll ups I want. Give me a roll up where I can unlock scale advantages, you know, or network effects or something like that. Not, not just I'm bigger and and, but on a per share, it's it's not it's not any true genuine growth that a shareholder can likely or reasonably expect to be sustained for the long term. Mm. So when I look at them, I go, no, no, thanks. As a listed company, as a private business at the right price, hundred percent, sign me up. Yeah. I, um, and I guess the other thing too, is it, I, I, I'm not a thematic investor generally. I don't, I don't own anything based on its sector. Now I own some things in the same sector because they're multiple attractive ideas in that sector. But I don't have a view on the sector as a, as a whole and its investment. You've done a great job of identifying and summarizing the, the circumstances they find themselves in. Um, so I don't, I don't have a view on a sector. I, I say that because I want to go to both sides of my mouth for a second. It's possible that a listed co-op provider could actually run itself intelligently and conservatively and carefully along the lines you've just talked about yeah. and not get much growth, but be a really good income generator for years to come it'd be a kind and of stock could, that trades at 12 on a pe but maybe right. gives you with franking credits a good seven eight percent like right. i'm wrong with that and that business would be perfectly fine actually you get some inflation you get some growth yeah. uh, more more a, more a, you know more a supermarket right this mm-hmm. this kind of saturated business that just chooses to grow with gdp plus a little bit opens a center every now and again when it can find a decent opportunity yep keep it full but otherwise kind of it is what it is yep i loved your example mate of the of the aged care companies actually because and, and i'm sure Alyssa knows this because they're in the in the business this is a capacity yes business if you can keep these things 100 capacity you make a squillion dollars at 80 percent capacity you're losing money yep and so it only is a question of yeah, can yeah. i keep them full that, it's such a great point right though 80 percent is just to, i need the 80 percent full just to break even making yep. the number yep. up but i believe it's around that, I think, that figure. I think it might be more might be 85 either way it's, it's yeah it's, you need and that's because, and then everything after that yeah. it, like the profit on, on the mm. margin it's like the next kid that comes in yep. is all profit yep 100 percent free because you don't need you need a couple of extra sultanas and whatever but you don't need another teacher you don't need another set of chairs and tables you don't need another center you don't need yep. another sand pit the costs have already been covered this is a relatively high fixed cost investment yes. and those costs that aren't fixed are effectively fixed for example the number of uh, educators and and um and carers you need yep. for that center is largely a, a, you know you, you add per child added of course but at some point you know it's it's effectively a fixed cost unless your capacity falls so far yep so so in all intents and purposes if you want to try and write properly they're fixed costs uh but the incremental kid is is really profitable same as airlines yeah right 80 percent capacity they, they lose a fortune 100 capacity Qantas makes two and a half billion dollars that's exactly how it happens yep. virgin made some money this time around uh, first time in a decade again why because it's at capacity with no price competition now my biggest concern with childcare, and uh, I listen to Frank, the questioner is actually closer than I am. So uh, I'm going to make some general comments, but not assume I know better. The, the challenge, it doesn't cost much or take much to add capacity in this sector. So you've got a situation where you've got relatively low margins for most players until you're at capacity. But to get to capacity, you have to, get it, you have to fill up and stay full 
and hope no one opens near you and sucks the kids out into a different into a different place. Mm. Now, when you're at capacity, you can charge whatever you want. People desperately need to get their kids in. There are no other centers anywhere else nearby, uh, so they're going to pay whatever you whatever you charge. At some point, someone says, "I'll open another one nearby, and another one nearby, and another one nearby." One of my favorite self-written quotes about investing, uh, give myself a wrap, is you're only as profitable as your least rational competitor allows you to be. I love it. Right? If Virgin doubled its capacity tomorrow, Qantas, oh, how am I going with the phone? Um, if, I, if, I, um, if, if Virgin doubled its capacity tomorrow, Qantas goes broke. Yeah. Right? Not goes broke. makes no money. loses money. Yeah. Because its competitor is irrational. Now, if it's purely rational like it is now, self-interested and rational, they all make a fortune. Yeah. The question for any investment, but particularly, I'll say, businesses like childcare centers is, how confident are you, you can keep capacity high for an extended period of time without competition eroding that, that business model, that, that margin? Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I would be concerned about it. Uh, I think that unless you're playing the takeover arbitrage game that Ram identified beautifully, at a center-by-center level, how sure am I I'm going to get to or keep that high capacity? What happens if someone opens next door well, or across the road or down the street or across the suburb? Oops, now I've got twice as many places or you know whatever extra increment uh, for the same number of kids. So it kind of you're kind of relying on, inter- on localized competition. Yeah. If you think, if you have a strong view that that won't happen for whatever reason, and maybe staff shortages is one, maybe the government rules is another, then knock yourself out. I would suspect with not many barriers to entry, plenty of potential uh, educators who might want to leave your business and try start their own across the road or down the street. Um, I wouldn't think this is a sector that lends itself to superior economic returns over time. Now, you own your centers. You said you've got a, a, a few small centers. Maybe you know differently. Maybe your result is, is great and maybe you have the secret source. Uh, certainly local... Local branding, local reputation is really important. People yes. all want to go to the, the best centers, so that's yeah. part of it. Um, problem with buying big ones is you kind of lose that local. You know, people don't necessarily want to go to the local one because it's part of a big chain. They've heard wonderful things about it. They <laughs> li- largely go to a center because their sister's brother's cousin's friend has a kid there who loves it, raves about it, and that's it's exactly what it is. Stuff are great. That's exactly and what so it is. And yep. so, at, 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 at an ASX level, I, I'd, I would rather buy or invest in. Uh, a center run by someone a bit like you and I were talking about mechanics off air, Ram. Uh, I'd rather I'd rather go and invest, buy a share of the local mechanic that people rave about. Everyone wants to go to, mm-hmm. and if someone opens nearby, they're still going to go to the same guy because he's great. Yep. And the reason they're not going to go there, or it could be a girl, uh, the reason not going to go there is if they're full and can't get in. Mm-hmm. That's the business you want to own. Yep. If I had to, if I had to buy a share in, and I'd pick Toyota for fun. I drive Toyotas, <coughs> uh, Toyota's national service centers where there's a bureaucracy and paperwork and culture is a bit questionable and the guy who runs it doesn't own it, which one would I rather do? Back to founder owners as a preference for investors, I suppose. Um, I would rather buy a small share in high-quality owner-operated childcare centers than buy a share in a group where, as much as people try hard, and I'm sure they do, um, you must, by definition, lose that personal touch, commitment, dedication, quality control the larger these things get, where personal service and reputation really, really matters. Um, you, you beat me to it. It, it is Sorry. not the kind of business you want the bean counters to be in control of. <laughs> yes, yeah. You know, it, it is... Um, we took our kids out when they were that age of uh, a place that was just awful. 
you know. And the only reason we went there in the first place, we didn't have much choice because there wasn't a lot on offer. But yeah. the moment there was, we were gone. And I know half the families we spoke to were, in fact, all the families we spoke to were tending on doing the same kind of thing. Right. It strikes me as the kind of business that you do because you just, you love, you love, um, looking after young kids, you know, and for some people, they, mm-hmm. they, they love that, you know, what a, what a fulfilling, enriching, yeah. you know, wonderful kind of yeah. uh, uh, career that is for, for some kind of people. I think if it's the same with the mechanic, you know, it's, it's typically the, you know, being gendered here, but it's typically the guy who loves cars and loves tinkering about in the, yeah, yeah. the yep, exactly. I, I, it's in, in so many of those kinds of areas, it's sort of, they, the ones that are super successful, really deliver a great service and do things above and beyond what might be in their immediate near-term profit interests. But the longer-term profit realization is there mm-hmm. through the loyalty and the brand recognition and these other, you can't, you can't pull that out of a hat, right? Like that is built over many, many years. Yeah, and exactly. it is, it is very, very sort of potent. The child, the list of childcare operators that at least I was familiar with and tracked, they lost that because someone will come in and go, you know what? If we gave the mm-hmm. kids, to your example, one less sultana each, doesn't sound like much, but across our entire network, we save, you know, five million dollars this year. So, okay, let's yep. do that. You know, if we buy this lower quality brand of whatever, we do this. You know, if we can fit in another kid, or you know, whatever it happens to be, it's sort of like it keeps the share market happy for the next quarterly review. But just guts the company long term, and, and just like that reputation isn't easily turned around. Mm. And I tell you what, when mums and dads are looking at where to send their most precious thing in the world, <laughs> they're, they're going to be they're going to be attuned to to that kind of thing. So, yeah, I will say too, mate. I don't want to overly criticise those companies as wanting to deliberately try and cut costs because that's what they set out to do. Some of them do. Others of them just kind of, you made the point at the very top, which is you fall into that trap of like the market needs more growth. Okay, yeah. well, I guess we can find more growth. Okay, how can we find it? We've yeah. cut a Sultana. That doesn't seem like much fun. Oh, it's okay. The kids will be all right. They're still getting seven little Sultanas. Oh, okay, that's pretty fair. Okay, we, oh, let's do that. Mm-hmm. And, and all of a sudden, again, we're talking about psychology on yeah, It's not malicious. Sub, yeah. It's not. And the subconscious idea of, it, it's the, I don't love slippery slope kind of like concepts, but it's the, it's, it's the incrementality of it. Mm. that day by day by day by day if you look back and go man i started there how did i get here and and with no i say mate no malice no bad intent you can be mm. yourself you have to the market mm. needs it uh i'm a listed company now i'm in that space i guess we should yep. what are we going to do about it uh, i guess maybe we're gonna make some hard decisions then i guess okay here's what we'll do the culture of being a listed company the culture of talking to fund managers the the expectation of of a group uh and by the way, the person who probably started it might still be the CEO, but the person who decides on the Sultanas is the hired hand who is the third layer down in the in the you know hierarchy who is the mm. general manager of food and catering mm. and they've got a budget so they get their number. Mm-hmm. And even the CEO thinks, no, of course we would never do stuff like that. We would never, mm. you know, they, they don't see the conversations, they don't see the, the arguments. Um, the, the, the further divorced you are from the decisions being made, the, the greater the chance the culture starts to, to, to go. Now- It, do, it doesn't scale well happened. as a business, does it? At, yes, that's at, the, at the front line. You know. Yeah, you say, you say a bit on, on head office costs and that's about it. There's not, there's not that much mm. scale benefit. It's probably, it's nice, it's fine. You know, having five is better than having one from a scale perspective, but it's not that much better. It doesn't make that much of a difference. I'll give you one quick example, another sure. one. Um, uh, Kelly Partners, so they're they're essentially a roll-up play of accountancy practices. Yep. They've actually done really well. Um, uh, but I, I feel as though there are some similarities in the sense that your local accountancy practice does 
tend to exist on reputation. It is a a business where I know Brett Kelly, uh, the founder and CEO, has done a lot to sort of um, leverage workplace practices and Mm -hmm. processes and these kinds of things. But it doesn't naturally lend itself to leverage uh, operational leverage and scale advantages and these kinds one of One advisor things. per client, so many hours a day. When, when you're providing personal services like accounting or, frankly, childcare, yeah. there's not so much you can get out of the person. You know, one person per child, one advisor per hour, one whatever. These, these are largely fixed costs. Look at the per, look at the unit. look at the chains of hairdressers that are yeah. out there as well. Yeah, I mean, well. same the same kind of thing. It just, I, I think it's because, generally speaking, it's just corporate is dominated by male and I and mm. because of that I think there's just a lot of ego at play. I would rather be the CEO of a childcare or accountancy practice or hairdressing mm. network mm. that has 800 centers nationwide yeah. than I would of a person who owns three or four completely under the radar but yes, makes incredible yeah. returns and delivers incredible <laughs> value right. to society. You know, right, it's just right. sort of, I feel, I feel like really when you boil it down, ego has a lot to sort of answer for with oh, a lot of these kinds of things. Yep. yep. And, and overly zealous investment bankers who should like put decks together and do formulations <laughs> and stuff. They say, look, we do this. We can do this forever and make yeah. a gazillion dollars. But, yeah. yeah, I hope that answers the question, though. But I, I, would, say that, I would say, look, personally, if you're on the inside of the, of the tent mm. there, which you are, you don't need us to tell you how the dynamics of the industry. You, yes. know, you know full well. <laughs> I would imagine with your scarce capital, whether you've got $10 million or zero, I mean, your capital is scarce. It's limited. I would be asking, do I want to invest in a listed company mm. pursuing in operating in this industry where they are subject to some some not great incentives and the rest of it? Or am I better off just opportunistically buying another center when a good deal comes along? Yeah. I suspect- As long probably- as you don't lose those- those things we just talked about. If you, yeah, if you yeah, 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 absolutely. Yourself, you run uh, that. You run the yes. very real risk. Hundred percent, hundred percent. But yeah, do, do do it that way. If if you like the sector, you see the tailwinds, and you've got the opportunity. You're not going to be buying a sector next quarter just because the market expects it next quarter. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. You'll do it like, oh, there's nothing available, so I'm not doing nothing. Oh, oh, something's come up. Oh, the price seems reasonable. Actually, I can run that a lot. But yeah, actually, let's do it. That makes a lot of sense. Like, they're 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 two very different outcomes of quote unquote, playing the same kind of business. And one just seems infinitely more appealing to me. Yep. Uh, avoiding the institutional imperative. Yes. Is, is key for Nicely any put. business, by including a whole lot on the ASX, for, for all of what we just said at childcare, that applies to a whole lot of businesses. Eh. A whole lot of companies I wouldn't buy because they've just become, you know, Woolies I mentioned a couple of times, they're a great business. They culturally fell in a massive hole for a few years because mm. um, they, they lost what made it special. I used to work in Woolies a million years ago and I worked in the head office for a while. And these people had worked their way up from the shop floor to be managing a supermarket, to come into the office and work in the office. They wow. would get to work early. They'd leave late. The, the culture, you know, they were they wore the name name badges in the office, you know, and it was kind really of, it was that's hokey, great. But it was and it was because yeah. it was literally like that that st- the shop front idea, um, uh, you know, that it was run by a, a series of grocers, mm. a, a series of supermarket managers who just took that idea and took it to the head office and said, we will do it this way. They used to have a- um, It's like the Walmart story, right? Yeah. Well, they used to have these notepads they used to use. And at the bottom of the notepad for the office, it would say, quote, if you're not serving the customer, you must be serving someone who is. And it was, it, was just, it was that culture was so incredibly ingrained and they lost it. They, they had a couple of people running the business who were corporate types and, mm-hmm. and not out of the supermarkets and wanted to think about the, you know, the cooler, kind of bigger issues. Yep. And they completely lost touch with what made a supermarket a supermarket. Mm-hmm. You know, retailers, easy. 
but not simple. Yeah. You know, it's not a complex business, but to do it really, really well, you've got to focus on making sure it works. Um, so culture, culture works and you can lose it. You lose it quite quickly. Well, what was the the Walmart guy, the founder? Sorry, Sam what Walton. What was the book about? Made in America. Thank Fantastic you. Fantastic book. Well, I love, years ago I since I read it, but that is yep. Yep. such that classic example of, of a leader and leadership team mm-hmm. operating right at the front line. You know, whenever you get a a business where management are like eight people deep from what's actually (laughs) happening and there's no upward communication, I just, I mean, A, how do you, how can you possibly make informed decisions? You don't know Mm -hmm. what's going on. Mm -hmm. Definitionally, you don't know what's going on. It's amazing how common, (coughs) pardon me, that 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 is. So I I do love it. That was always, who was it? Um, Daryl, I've gone blank on his last name, used to run Bapcor. Always used to wear the, the work polo. Uh, yes, yeah, mate, it's huge. Always on the on the, on the the floor, you know, yep. and it just like in the yep. business did really well under his stewardship. And it, it's yep. because he got it, right? It's just sort of like I am that kind of person that's putting my shoes, my feet in the shoes of, of mm-hmm. the customer and that is, mm-hmm. that is my focus. And lo and behold, that kind of person, no guarantee, but they tend to run better business than someone who's got all the credentials in the world but has never left the boardroom, certainly never packed any shelves or, you know, anything like that. It, it just – those people can make things look really good for a little while, but reality tends to catch up pretty fast and, uh, yeah, it's something to avoid. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Let's go to a question from Bobby. Hello, you can call me Bob, so I will, Bob. I'm uh, I'm running with a bit of feedback for the podcast. Uh, we had uh, Leah who asked a question uh, ages ago, actually. Uh, Bob's catching up, which is lovely. So thank you for doing that. Uh, Leah was investing while living in the UK. I'm just going to share Bob's feedback um, with it with a disclaimer at the end. Uh, he says, as a resident or taxpayer in the UK, you can open a stocks and shares ISA, independent savings account or something, I think, up to twenty thousand pounds per year. Uh, profits and dividends are within a tax wrapper and as such are not taxed as passive income or as capital gains when or if she wants to sell. When she leaves the UK, she will not be able to contribute any more funds to the account, but any money in the account can be utilised, withdrawn or used to buy shares. He says then, this is not personal advice. If I, if two learned, trusted fools can't give such advice, you sure shouldn't be taking it from me. Thanks. I hope this is helpful. He says, I'm a subscriber to the Australian, US and UK services and love the regular podcast you and your colleagues put out. Looking forward to the conversations each week. Thank you for the input and reassurances. Much appreciated from Garbo Bob. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Very, a very niche answer to a very niche question, but uh, given Bob took the time to, to share it, yeah. uh, hopefully Leah and other people in that situation. Again, not advice. Bob's not an expert, neither are we. Uh, that's his understanding, and he knows more about it from the sound of it than we do. So hopefully they'll give uh, Leah and others a bit, of, a bit of extra feedback. Very helpful. Thank you. A question from someone who's anonymous. Hi, Scott and Ram. Please keep my name anonymous, says our anonymous questioner. Thanks for the great content, as always. I would like to offer a contrarian cookie and invite you to discuss the dark side of the share market, e.g. small cap, dare I say it, lithium mining. Now, before you label me as a punting day trader on hot copper, (laughs) I think lithium mining is the elephant in the room that we can't ignore. We've seen market darlings... 23 bag and 11 bag in just the last 12 months with their world-class hard rock lithium deposits 
And let's not forget the recent media coverage about buyout offers from international companies with counter offers from our one and only iron ore magnate, Jenner, of course, that we're talking about here. Contrary to usual value investing, my thesis is changing to accept that most of the gains in share prices come from initial exploratory drilling reports while companies are still small cap, years before they become profitable. I treat them like pharmaceutical companies early in phase one or two trials. My question to the pod machine is this. What advice do you have for someone like myself who is incredibly bullish on Australian geology and mining but still wants to make level-headed, risk-adjusted investments? Full on from Anon. Uh, really great question. By the way, Anon, thank you for uh, for putting your, your head above the parapet on this one because you know uh, we have some thoughts. Uh, but you've asked a really thoughtful, interesting question. You've made a very interesting case too. So um, appreciate the the contrarian perspective, a different different view, and we'll give it our level best. What do you think, mate? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm got to be. We really have to define things carefully here because if yeah. you're saying, do you think the world needs more lithium? My answer is a definitive yes, unless there is some really unexpected change in storage technology i think that that's likely to stay true for a while uh, if we're going to electrify the world and i hope we do uh we need a hell of a lot of this stuff so electrify i get electrocute just so we're clear yeah yeah electrify yes <laughs> um so yeah so i'm 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 hyper bullish on the need for lithium hmm. but i i think that where the market gets it too wrong is is understanding that actually anyone who's a chemist will know this. Look at the periodic table. Lithium's like one of the most abundant elements in the entire universe. There's no shortage of it. I know they're called rare earth materials, but that's a that's a sort of um, an yes. anachronism of you know because it, it was they were very Marking rarely line. they were very yeah. rarely mined yeah. because it's got mineral sands back in the day. That's true. Much less sexy. Yeah. yeah right. We, which 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 just we didn't need that much of it. There wasn't a huge amount of industrial demand. Now there is, and that's changed. So you you. What you will tend to see is that you will see markets and economies doing what we like them to do, which is demand and supply having this interplay and this dance, <laughs> which will, will, yes, we will see increasing demand, but we will also see increasing supply. Yep. And it's more a question of where is the value captured along that amount you extract from the ground to the person who eventually sells you a Tesla or a Powerwall or, you know, product X that, that requires lithium, smartphone, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's generally not the miners. It's generally not. I agree that the best money is made for those that go from, we actually have nothing except a, a license to explore some land <laughs> and we discover something. Because you go from something that's complete wing and a prayer to, oh, we've got something. And, and that is literally, well, not literally, but almost literally like striking gold, right? <laughs> trouble is you can't predict it. Mm. Um, if you could, the opportunity wouldn't be there. The other trouble is that they, it is the statistical minority, like just most companies don't. I still think you could put forward a strategy on it. If you were basically to say, look, I do know a bit of geology. I do know a bit about the dynamics of these things. I'm going to make 20 different investments in in lithium explorers knowing that 19 are not are going to zero but that the one that goes to the moon will go to the moon and make a very decent return you, you can that, that vcs invest in that fashion as we've spoken of before so if you're going into it eyes wide open knowing what your odds are and, and looking to play it in that way it's not my cup of tea i wouldn't advocate it for the for the average investor but i i'm not going to criticize it if, if that's what you're going to do but the kind of person who just 
buys something because lithium, because we need more of it, I think hasn't thought it through. The biggest lithium exposed ETF on the Aussie Stock Exchange is down after two and a half years. You bought it at the beginning of 2021, actually almost three years, done nothing. And despite despite what we've seen in the world over the last three years in terms, and what what does that sort of tell you? So I guess there, there are my, my, my thoughts yep. on it. How, how would you carve it up? I wouldn't agree. I wouldn't agree much, mate. I disagree much. Sorry. <laughs> um, I think um, hindsight is is, a, is wonderful, and we've talked about buy now, pay later uh, on Friday. Um, after I went from nothing to a squillion and then back again, yeah. uh, the business block that bought Afterpay is now worth less than the price it paid for <laughs> Afterpay. So think think that through, right now. Someone says, I bought Afterpay at five, I sold at 150, I'm a genius, therefore I should buy other, other buy now, pay later players because look how good the sector is. Uh. You know, two years later, uh, most of them are broke. Uh, they're certainly worth an absolute truckload less. Using the gains thus far to make the case, I think is a mistake. I've said for a long time, I think buy now, pay later will be a feature of banking probably forever. I don't know how it's gonna survive as a product. And I think that's mm. been largely vindicated. Not because I'm a genius, just because it seemed obvious to me that as a product, once your product becomes someone else's feature, as I've said before, you're in a world of trouble. Uh, digital cameras, um, you know, are now in phones. How many digital cameras are sold? Some, mm. <laughs> as many as the cameras are used to, you know, film cameras. No, because you, everyone's got a digital camera in their pocket now. Yeah, um, like like buying a calculator. Like, yeah. Why am I AM buying a radio? It's on my right, smartphone. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, um, I I don't want to be critical. You want to invest in lithium? That's fine. Knock yourself out. I wouldn't do it. I don't do it. Uh, I don't know. I'm interested what the price will be. I don't know what the demand will look like. I don't know where the margins will be or where the value gets accreted. Uh, I've given the example before of oil over the 20th century went up something like two and a half times in price adjusted for inflation. Mm. Over when, when volume went from literally zero to hundreds of millions of barrels. Um, and, and yet the price only went up two and a half fold. And you said, why is that? The why is because we got better at doing it. Scale took over. The money wasn't there. Now, if that happens lithium, how much is left? Uh, are those market darlings worth the increases or are you benefiting from the fad? Now, if you're a fad chasing investor and you want to play that game, go for it. Uh, you're right. It, it, 12 months ago, if we bought all these, I, I would have said 12 months ago on this podcast, I'm sure, don't buy lithium. The fact the share price is up means that I missed out on the speculative bubble and maybe the speculative bubble becomes a justified price for volumes and prices that continue to rise and they make a lot of money. Um, or increased supply comes on and causes trouble. Yeah, mate, look at look at um, iron ore, right? Like, Yes, great example. Uh, China has hoovered up every last ton of that stuff for as long as mm-hmm. you can remember. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no short, there's, like, look, yep. there's no, iron is, is, is a very common element out there. Yeah. Um, most stable atomic nucle- nucleus, if I remember my, uh, my physics and chemistry correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of need to get a supernova to get fused nuclei above, above that. But, mm-hmm. My point is, is that uh, you will find that the price of iron ore is unchanged in nominal terms mm. since, well, as far back as my chart, little chart here goes, which is <laughs> 2007. Right. So in inflation, in real terms, it's gone backwards quite substantially, probably 30, 40% or so. Yeah. In, a, in an environment where we've just, we've never shipped more of it. We've never, there's never been a in, more increasing demand of it because there's just tons of the stuff around. We just dig more up when we need it. That's a, that's a really great example. So, um I think, I don't know. I, 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 bottom line, I'm not buying lithium. 
Uh, I'm not sure where the price is going to be, and I'm not sure whether the gains we've seen are justified or are speculative bubbles. Graphene was going to be the biggest thing since sliced bread. Cannabis, you know, you know, we could have said the same thing. We've seen market darling X and Y double, triple, quadruple in the last five years because everyone's going to be using medicinal cannabis. Or it's going to be legalized, therefore we're going to make a fortune. Maybe it still happens, maybe it doesn't. Uh, certainly the share prices have, have absolutely cratered. I wouldn't want to bet that lithium is the exception that proves the rule. That said, you asked about what advice do we have, someone who wants to make level-headed, risk-adjusted investments. I wish I'd give you a better answer. Um, and I'm not trying, to be, not trying to be painful or difficult or smart, Alec. I just don't know that I can. Um, I don't know how I would sensibly invest in lithium other than Ram's point, be diversified, both within the lithium sector and make sure your portfolio itself is diversified. Um, if you bet everything on this sector, maybe it goes up, maybe you make a fortune, or maybe in a year's time you're down 90% and kicking yourself. Those two outcomes are not worth punting on one or the other because if you get the wrong one, you're in trouble. So just be just be careful. It's probably the best way I'd go. Yeah, I mean, and just take it on a case by case basis. I I I know a couple of people who do okay in this space, but they do it. They they go beyond the first order thinking. It's like mm. I understand the quality of the assets that this yes, particular yes, company yes. has. I know that their cost of extraction is this. I don't know what the market price will be, even with increasing demand expectations. But I know that they've got a pretty decent margin here and that there's likely to... And, and you know what? I think that the current share price is cheap relative to the kind of profits that they're able to generate, even if I assume the price doesn't change. That's a very... I mean, I, I will never knock that back. But that's the just, price may still fall, don't forget. The, look, the price may... You still could be wrong on it, but at least it's yeah. articulated and reasoned yes, fair. intelligently. Fair. Mm-hmm. And too often people go, oh, yeah, but but we need more of it, so I'm going to buy it. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, too, it's, it's too simplistic. You need to go – yeah, you need, you, need, you need to have build up a bottom-up case for why this business, why in this space, why is mm-hmm. the current price attractive? And if you've done that, I mean, you might still be wrong. Lord knows I've been wrong a gazillion times on, <laughs> on trying to do it that way. Yep, <laughs> like you, yep. you will be wrong, but it's just the nature of, it, of investing. But at least, you've, at least you've articulated it in a way that isn't just based on a flawed mm. assumption mm. that the un- price of the underlying commodity will forever shoot higher. And I know the, I know the listener's not saying that, so I don't want yes. to put those words yes. in their mouth. Um, I, you, you're definitely not saying that. But, but a lot of people do say that. And the amount of times you hear so-called experts in fancy suits on TV shows going, oh, well, you want to buy this because of X, Y, and they've, they've all got mud on their face at this point. Except somehow they keep getting invited back for these shows because they just continually <laughs> move on to the next thing. And by the way... Um, this you mentioned it was it last on Friday or today, but expect the same with AI, right? Yeah, correct. AI is going to be bigger in the future. Yep, sign me up. Give me your newsletter. I'm I'm on board. I am the biggest yeah. advocate of AI. You will. I think it is it is as big as the internet in terms of of what it represents for humanity and and the commercial opportunity it presents. I also know that every single company in the world is going to start talking about how they use AI and this and that. And you know, we're an AI company and it's just and most of them are not going to be able to differentiate themselves in any in any kind of meaningful way that generates outsized profits for them and not their competitors. The question well, is- Coles are both online. They're both selling groceries. The internet's worked nicely for them. It hasn't given either of them an advantage over the other. It just no. made them both both better businesses. But the comp- the value is actually accrued to the customer who gets to order yep. online, go and pick up from the boot in 20 minutes and your job's done. That, that, is, that is exactly what it is. So I've made those, so I'm going off topic here, but my point has been in general terms, if you want to 
ask yourself, what is the kind of company that can benefit from AI? I would say my current thinking, and I could, could cringe when I listen to this in, in years to come, my current thinking is, is mm. that anyone that has proprietary data, mm. because don't forget, I, it's not as though you have to build your own model. You, you will rent it. You will software mm -hmm. as a service it. You, you, will, you will just like, oh, thank you, yep. Silicon Valley, you know, trillion dollar company for developing this wizard in a box. I'm just going to point it at my data. And now yes. I'm going yeah. to extract huge amounts of value from that. That's, that's a different story than saying, well, Woolies is going to use it because it's going to streamline their logistics operations. Well, great. Mm -hmm. But so is Coles, so is Aldi, so is Costco, so is everyone else. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know? Exactly, exactly. By the way, by the way, sorry, mate, I'm going on a bit here. All right, go for it. Charlie Munger mm. was asked about his view of the internet. I want to say might have been early 2000s, maybe even late 90s. Okay. And he said, no, nah, it's not going to create any value for businesses. And his argument was, well, everyone will use Like, even if there is value to be had, everyone will use it. So it's, it's not going to. And he was kind of right. Yeah, so it's not a value. It's not a value. When we talk about value, we don't mean. Munger means we mean. It's not saying it's not doesn't make businesses better or customer experience easier. It's like what incremental profitability does it generate for those companies? Yes. And to your point, the answer is almost. I think he's, I think he's dead right, mate. There was specific. Let's, I mean, he missed the rise of Amazon and, and, and right. all of the the big yes, Netflix yes. and the, he he did miss that. Because he missed the network effect. Uh, he was just like, yes, but but companies that are truly global with zero marginal yeah. cost of production. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not. Look, who am no, I? No, Sorry, no, really really sticks really at, at Charlie. But yep, but no, really but he was he, he was. He, it's a great example of someone who hyper intelligent person mm. who's been generally right, but then can still miss miss some things that are right in front of their face. So, <laughs> what's investing is hard, as I like to say. Yep, it is, mate. Last one. Let's finish off with a question from. Let me find it. Sorry. Throw myself here. From Steve, who says, Hi, Scott and Ram. Love the show and listen to both episodes every week. I have a question about the big shift towards passive ETFs over and against active money managers. I have about 80% of my investment money in ETFs, he says. And with the other 20%, I have actively picked six to seven individual stocks. My question is, what happens if the money pouring into ETFs just keeps growing? Will that drive active money managers out of business? For example, what if the money going to ETFs increased by five times? What would that mean for the overall health of the stock market? Is there any potential downside from this huge shift to passive ETF investing? Love to hear your thoughts and thanks for the show, Steve. You go first on this one, mate. I uh, it'll have absolutely bugger all impact, Steve, uh, in my humble opinion, with a couple of caveats. So... Um, this is a favorite of active money managers who try and do this scare campaign about how terrible ETFs are. And we're talking passive ETFs here uh, for the market. Oh, well, it's passive ETF. No one's thinking, therefore no one's whatever. All complete tripe. Um, here's the thing. If you go back 30 years, pick a, pick a date, trading volumes were a heap less. So what so what happens if, if it's active ETFs, generally speaking, there'll be fewer trades and there'll be fewer people overall actively contributing to what they call price discovery, which is a ridiculously wanky term for basically just, you know, supply and demand interacting. And in theory, it's true that if you've got a million people on the buy side, a million on the sell side, you're probably going to have more efficient than having 10 on each side. Why? Because the wisdom of the crowds and more people and all that kind of stuff, the spread between the buy and the sell price is also probably lower for the same reasons. But that's a stockbroker's problem. And that's a trader's problem. <laughs> if, if, uh, I'll pick coming out. If Berkshire Hathaway shares were 
uh, there was a bigger spread between the two prices by 1%. I could pay possibly 1% more than I should for Berkshire Hathaway shares. Over 40 years, it's going to be completely material to my investing thesis because the results of my investing are going to be the results of the company, not whether or not the buy-sell spread was smaller. If you're, an ab- if you're an absolutist, if you're someone who has a particular predilection for capital efficiency or market price discovery or that kind of rubbish, um, you can see where fewer active participants would have a deleterious effect on the market for that reason. You know, a market's more efficient with more players, just happens to be true. So if there are fewer people buying, fewer people selling, it's probably slightly less capital E efficient in air quotes. In other words, you know, maybe there's a bit of a bigger gap. Um, it means absolutely nothing to the market. And the reason I say that is because go back, I said go back 30 years, there weren't the high frequency trading bots. There weren't, there wasn't online trading that Ramey mentioned on Friday. Um, and the market operated perfectly fine and people made money buying Walmart and Berkshire Hathaway and wasn't Amazon back then, probably Exxon or GM or G or something else. Um, people made money buying the companies they bought and the market went up over time you look at the yearly growth of the stock market um back to 1930 when the dow jones was in double digits you know it might have been double digits you know the index value was 30 or 100. now it's a few thousand um many less traders many less computers many less owners was the market less efficient yeah if, if that's what you care about but i care about making money and to my mind it absolutely matters not a single zack if it was 99% of the market, then I guess. But you can think about active, if you think about passive ETFs, effectively is money that doesn't, doesn't change hands because it doesn't need to. So it just, it just leaves the market. There is no market distortion from that. There's just simply fewer people doing the buying and selling. And yeah. it's honestly, fund managers bring it up all the time. You get the occasional article in the AFR where they, they pretend the sky is falling. It is, I, I, I kind of can't quite believe all of them are self-serving and, and trying to pull the wool over our eyes, but I think most are. And the other ones I just think are wrong. I think they just want to believe that they add value, so they want to believe these things are true. Um, if it increased five times, mate, my investing returns wouldn't change. Your investing returns wouldn't change. Um, the day trader might have a bit more trouble getting uh, you know, a, a lower spread, a smaller difference between buy and sell. I don't care. So does it have an impact for those people? Yeah, probably. Do the stockbrokers find it hard to, do a, to place a trade? Probably. Does it matter? No. Um, you know, the stock market is a representation of business. The prices are roughly appropriate. If you don't like the price, don't buy. If you like the price, buy. That's all you have to do. Mm. It's a really, really, really simple thing. We overcomplicate it because computers get involved and people want to be masters of the universe. Um, completely irrelevant. Completely irrelevant. Yeah, people forget that markets are both dynamic and adaptive. And, yep. and prices set on the margin. So, I mean, I, I do have sympathy for the notion that, well, from a mechanic mechanical standpoint, there's just more money follow, flowing into the bigger index stocks because th- than there otherwise would be because it's unthinking. It's just, I just want exposure to the market, buy this, just buy whatever's already big, you know, in yep. these current things. Yep. And I, I, I yep. get that. I mean, that all else being equal, that, that would be a distortion. But then if it got to a point where if you just play that forward and it's sort of like, well, now we've got Woolies trading on a P of 70 or whatever it is. Yes, right. You're going to find a whole bunch of direct holders going, I am taking that money. Right. Thank you very much. Right? Yeah. Like they, they, they will correct. It's, it's, it's the kind of problem that has its own yep. solution to it. Yep. <clears throat> I do think it's a fascinating discussion. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to weigh into the debate. But I'm with you, mate. It doesn't change. I, I would not. There, there are so many things to worry about when it comes to investing that this, this is this is not one of them. So 
So let's say Woolies got a million shareholders and then 90% of that goes to ETFs and they've got 100,000 shareholders left. Yeah. That's still more than enough. Let's say it goes again, there's 1,000 shareholders mm. left. That's still more than enough. If you want to buy, you want to sell at the right price, you'll do it. it, yeah. it the, the volume is not required for an investor to do well. Day trader, sure. Arbitrager, sure. High frequency trader, sure. Mm-hmm. You know what? I can do with that, all of those people. <laughs> I, I, you know, like we, we used to have stamp duty on shares. I'm not against bringing it back, which I know everyone will hate. But you know, if, it, if it's a handbrake to stupid trading, I, high, low, low brokerage, cheap brokerage is great for me because I, when I place my very irregular buy trades, I save a few bob. I'm reasonably sure if we put brokerage back up 100 bucks, the market outcomes for most people would be better. Yeah. Because the friction of actually maybe I shouldn't buy that because it costs too much or maybe I shouldn't sell or if I'm going to sell this and buy that, I'm going to pay double brokerage, so I better be careful. Mm-hmm. Some of those things, some of those, you know, again, psychology, some of those, some of those you know, psychological handbrakes to dumb decisions because it just increases the friction, I think is, is potentially a super useful idea. So I, if we went back to the 1980s, companies would still... Berkshire Hathaway grew from 1965 to today under Buffett's leadership. Trust me, it didn't need an efficient market or a lack of ETFs or some ETFs turning up to do any better or worse, right? It's a business and the business did really well and the share price reflects that. It's how it all works. So I get the question. It's a really good question. Um, Don't worry about it at all. Uh, You know, I I see no issues at all. For an investor, again, if you're a trader or whatever, not you know, good luck to you. But... um, I'm going to buy shares. I'm going to hold them for a long time. I'm going to sell them eventually, maybe. I'm going to dividends in the meantime. Mm. Does it matter to me if the market is a tenth of the size in terms of the number of participants? No, no, not in the slightest. No, yep, don't don't stress about it. Good advice. I think we're done, mate. Will you uh, join me next Friday? Yeah. yeah. In the meantime, 100%. if you do want to have a question answered or you just want to give us some feedback, hit us up on all of the socials. Uh, Ram is still exclusively only on Twitter, at uh, strawmaninvest or at sage underscore Simeon. You can get me on Twitter or Insta or threads at TMF Scott P. I'm also on Mastodon just to annoy Ram. Uh, but uh, I don't know what the handle is there. You'll find me if you're looking for me. <laughs> He's the only one there. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, Facebook at Scott Phillips Money or hit us up on email info at fool.com.au. If you have a question you want answered, there's a very good chance other people want it answered too. Uh, so please don't be shy throw a question in the mailbag and we'll try and get to it in uh, in reasonably quick time in the meantime enjoy the rest of your weekend and full on cheers the motley fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned general advice only please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener The Motley Fool operates under Financial Services Licence 400691.